beginning this evening's talk <clears throat> with uh, a poem by William Butler Yeats called The Celtic Twilight. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. The talk this evening is about the pure and beautiful mind, the benefits of concentration, insight, and metta practice. And with this evening's talk, we'll explore some of the wholesome and beautiful states or factors of mind, chetasikas in Pali, that are associated with the development and fruits of concentration, with the development and the fruits of metta practice, and with the deepening and fruits of insight, vipassana practice. All of which includes a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness, the chief, as the Buddha called mindfulness. This quality or factor of mind that needs to accompany us all through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitaka, the Abhidhamma Basket. So we'll do just a a brief uh, exploration of what this Abhidhamma Basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of the Buddha's teaching. The first basket or collection, as it's sometimes called, is the Book of Discipline, containing the rules of conduct for monks and nuns and all of the guidelines regarding governing and living in community, meaning in this case a monastic sangha, monastic community. Though many of these guidelines can also be applied uh, to living in a lay Buddhist community, living as Buddhist practitioners in a family, living as a Buddhist practitioner with a partner, living by oneself, or temporarily living in a community of practitioners such as we are here in this retreat. The second uh, collection or basket brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third collection or basket is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has a distinctly different character, distinctly different quality than the other two. Whereas it's not a record of discourses and discussions 
occurring in real life settings, uh, which both of the other two baskets are very much rooted in. But rather the Abhidhamma is a very clear, detailed, and refined disclosure of mind and mental processes that combine psychology, ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective into a very unique and really quite uh, remarkable synthesis. And it's experiential, meaning it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important in that it can be helpful and inspiring at some point along the way of our practice to actually hear in at least some detail about some of the more refined experiential uh, processes that are take place in our practice and to understand a bit more about how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my own practice, I've found this information quite interesting in and of itself, as well as the fact that this information, this understanding, can help to counter the fears or uh, other averse reactions, along with the made-up and sometimes fanciful stories uh, and, and analysis that we tell ourselves and that we go through, as well as the misinterpretations and misunderstandings and the attachments and clinging that certainly do come up in practice in relationship to what may be unusual or maybe unfamiliar experiences or even in relationship to our more familiar experiences. One of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, called these uh, unusual or non-ordinary wholesome experiences the Dhamma delights of our practice. The Abhidhamma speaks about 38 wholesome mental factors, 38 wholesome mental states, some of which are both wholesome and beautiful. And they're associated with the development phase of concentration and also with the manifestation of absorption uh, in jhana, with many of these states also occurring to varying degrees with the development and manifestation of metta and then ongoing into vipassana practice as mindfulness and insight unfold and blossom. 29 of these wholesome and beautiful mental states or mental factors are universal, universally developing throughout our practice. And six of them are considered to be occasional and are wholesome only if they're accompanied by wholesome consciousness. So what all this means will all become clearer as we explore these various mental factors together. 
The first five factors are active, wholesome mental factors that are part of both the initial and ongoing development, particularly uh, in a pure, with a pure concentration practice, and also with the focus of int- attention that's involved with metta practice. And the first two factors uh, are also uh, necessary and active components throughout our practice of vipassana, throughout uh, a mindfulness-based insight practice. The last three of these five factors uh, as active, wholesome, experiential states um, during specific stages of the development and the manifestation of concentration and jhana absorption, they're present there. And also in relationship to metta, to varying degrees. And they're also active during particular aspects of vipassana practice. So they're aspects of all of our practices. These first five wholesome factors of mind are aspects of practice that each one of you are experiencing to varying degrees right here and now in this retreat. So first I'll just list these uh, five wholesome mental factors that are associated with the development and concentration development of concentration and metta and also insight practice. The first is vitaka in Pali and it's usually translated as initial application. And the second vichara in Pali which is usually translated as sustained application. Only when these two uh, factors are accompanied by a healthy, wholesome mind consciousness uh, are these first two mental factors wholesome factors of mind. So they're called occasionals. Unwholesome application and sustaining the attention, sustaining the mind on something unwholesome is certainly very possible. And I'm sure each one of you know from your own experience that this is certainly very possible. Most likely each one of us have at times applied and sustained our attention on various unwholesome and maybe at times even harmful or hurtful or totally unnecessary or maybe frivolous or unskillful or insensitive activities. So those are the first two. This third one is piti in Pali, and it's often translated as joy and zest. The fourth, sukha in Pali, and it's often translated as a sweet happiness. And the fifth, ikagata, one-pointedness. So we'll explore each one of these in a little bit more depth. This first wholesome factor of mind, vitaka, translated as again as initial application, meaning it's the application of the mind to the object. 
Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. In our case here, for example, the sensations of the breath at the Anapana spot, or the movement of the breath in the belly, or to a particular metaphrase, or the internal visual image of the meta object, whatever that might be, a benefactor, dear friend, etc. Vitaka's function is to strike at the object as the very uh, graphic description uh, in the Abhidhamma speaks about. The process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind to the object. It's kind of like if any of you have ever tried to train a puppy. It's a big job. So, like, like training a puppy, uh, we do this again and again and again. Repeat again and again and again in our practice. Why? Because the mind is kind of like a puppy. It just runs uh, to just about anything. It'll run off to just about anything at any moment, at least for a while. So we're training the mind. We're training the mind, uh, teaching it how to apply itself, we could say, to a particular object that we want it to uh, pay attention to. Vitaka has a a kind of special task and a fruit uh, of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, inhibiting the hindrances of sleepiness and lethargy. Vitaka is very closely connected, very closely associated with intention, right intention or skillful, wise, wholesome intention as is uh, described in the Eightfold Noble Path. So the second wholesome factor of mind in Pali, vichara, sustained application. Vichara has the characteristic of continued pressure, or as it's uh, described in the Abhidhamma, stroking the object, in the sense of staying with it, and seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continuing and sustaining exercise of the mind on the object. And in our case here, it might be the breath sensations at the Anapana spot, or maybe the sensations of the in and out breath in the abdominal area for some of you. It might be a metaphrase, or the image of the metta object. Vichara temporarily inhibits the hindrances of doubt in deep states of concentration in jhana. And to varying degrees, it weakens doubt overall. It weakens doubt throughout one's ongoing concentration, metta, and vipassana insight practice. There are some wonderful metaphors or similes in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. Vitaka 
it's spoken about like this. It's like a bird spreading out its wings to fly. So the initial application. And vichara, like a bird gliding through the air with outstretched wings. The sustained application. The third factor of mind, piti, zest or joy. Piti is an occasional because only if it manifests with no identification and no attachment is it wholesome and beautiful. The mental characteristics of PT can be quite endearing. Some of them, anyways, can be quite endearing and can be explained as delight or a positive or pleasurable interest in the object. The function of PT is to refresh mind and body. And it pervades the mind and the body in its initial stages with maybe thrills and sometimes feelings of thrills, which are sometimes described as rapture. Though actually this word uh, doesn't really cover all of its nuances. In its earlier stages, PT often manifests as a mind-body quality of elation, gladness, joy, mirth, merriment, exultation, exhilaration, and a feeling of satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries, there are five grades of PT that uh, are, are distinguished and can arise with uh, when vitaka and when vichara are in place and perking in our practice. And I'm sure that uh, some of these will be uh, recognized by you uh, as experiences that have occurred uh, in your practice to varying degrees at various times. So the first is called minor joy or minor zest. And it's said it's able to raise the hairs on the body. The second is momentary joy or momentary zest. Like small flashes of lightning in the mind. The next is showering joy or showering zest. And this breaks over the whole body again and again like waves on the seashore, kind of orgasmic-like. And then there's uplifting joy, uplifting zest. And this can cause the body to feel as though it's levitating, lifting up. Which I've heard, actually, for some uh, yogis, has actually occurred. (laughs) My friend and co-teacher Saito Vivekananda tells a story... um, about a monk at a a particular monastery in Burma who was doing uh, vipassana practice, sitting practice, uh, in his room, in his bed, sitting on his bed. And he would rise up and then fall over. Rise up and then fall over. Uh, Well, he did something that's not uh, exactly recommended for monks or nuns or any of us, really. But he bragged. He bragged about it. 
to the other monks. Well, they wanted to see. They wanted to see it. So he said, oh yeah, okay. There's a window, right? You know, in front of my kuti, in the front wall. You come at a certain time, look in the window, and you'll see. So they did. They came and they watched him and he performed. (laughs) He rose up. He sat for a while until his concentration was just right. And he lifted up and fell over. They all came to watch the show and they were happy. (laughs) The next is pervading joy or pervading zest. And this floods the whole body and the whole mind with kind of a refreshing, bright elation. And in the Abhidhamma description they say it's like a flood that fills a cavern. As a factor of mind, a sustained piti, particularly piti that's experienced much more as a, as a mind state than a body state, has the and that begins to happen after a while. It becomes much more in, in, in the mind rather than in the body. The potential to weaken it has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will, and with a very focused and mindful and absorbed attention uh, on the object as happens uh, with the manifestation of jhana and sometimes also happens in metta practice, PT can temporarily completely inhibit ill will. And as I say, PT at this point is a mind state. It's not a bodily experience. In vipassana practice, All these things happen as well. But when there's self-identification and attachment, all of these experiences are called corruptions of insight. I don't use that term when I teach usually, but it does corrupt the process, the development of practice, when there is identification and attachment in relationship to any of these experiences. So the fourth of these wholesome mental factors, sukha, happiness, this kind of sweet happiness in Pali, this, uh, this state of mind is wholesome and beautiful only, only if there's no identification or attachment to it when it's occurring. Consequently, it's an occasional And this mental factor is a very pleasant, happy mental feeling born out of mind contact with the object of attention, such as the breath at the Anapana spot, or possibly the breath sensations in the belly, maybe in relationship to metaphrase, a metaphrase, and the object of metta, the practice of metta. Sukha is a very sweet, blissful mental feeling born out, of attach- born out of detachment from all sensual pleasures. And so it's explained 
uh, described and explained as unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it can be very, very gratifying, engendering a very deep sense of gratification. Consequently, it's very easy to get attached to. So mindfulness needs to remain quite strong and clear. Sukha counters and weakens the hindrance of restlessness and worry. Although piti and sukha are very closely connected, they're not the same. And there's a some uh, really uh, interesting uh, descriptions of piti and sukha in the commentaries uh, of the Abhidhamma that I'd like to share with you. Piti, joy, sometimes called rapture, is like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. This person sees another person on the path and asks, where is water? And the other person said, soon says soon there will be a dense forest with a lake. Go there and you will get some water. Upon hearing this, the traveler is glad, joyful and delighted and then more glad and delighted when they see leaves on the ground and then see people with wet clothes and wet hair and they hear the sounds of wildfowl. And then they see dense green, a dense green forest like a net of jewels growing at, by the edge of a lake. And then they see the clear transparent water and water lilies growing on the lake. And then this weary traveler is more and more and more joyful, glad, and delighted. So that's piti. Sukha in the Abhidhamma commentaries is described this way. This ease, this sweet happiness is like the traveler entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. The commentary describes it like this. The being descends into the lake, bathes and drinks with pleasure, eats the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorns herself or adorns himself with lotus flowers, then ascends the lake, dries off with a bathing cloth, and lays down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so gently and says, Oh, bliss, oh, bliss. With a sense of ease and sweet happiness grown very strong, enjoying the taste of the object says the commentary in the Abhidhamma. Piti, joy, rapture, and sukha, sweet bliss, the sweet bliss of happiness, are very closely connected, actually, but they're not the same. Piti gains prominence before sukha, and it provides a causal foundation for sukha to arise. The fifth of these wholesome mental factors is one-pointedness, ikagata, ikagata. And this is a universal mental factor, and it literally means one, a one-pointed state. 
And this mental factor is the primary component. It's the essence, we could say, of concentration, the essence of samatha, of samadhi. And it can be sustained and potentially, uh, as it's sustained and, uh, it, and, and potentially absorbed in a jhana concentration, it becomes very, uh, very, very strong and, and extremely one-pointed. It's also, uh, ikagata is also the momentary focus uh, in vipassana practice and in metta practice, because those are both working with the concentration on a momentary, moment-by-moment process. One-pointedness temporarily weakens sensual desire to some degree overall, while it's manifesting meditatively. And in the deep absorption of the fourth jhana, the development and maturation of ikagata completely, temporarily inhibits uh, uh, desire overall, sensual desire overall, and also weakens one one's tendency towards blindly or habitually being caught in various aspects of sensual desire when there's a maturing capacity developing for a momentary focus of attention accompanied by strong mindfulness. So it's very, it protects us. It's a, quite a wonderful protection. And both of these are necessary. Both of these aspects of ikagata are necessary conditions for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. The function of Ikagata of one-pointedness is that one is able to very closely contemplate the object. Though it can't perform this function all by itself. It requires the joint or the cooperative action of the other four factors that we've just explored. Each performing its own function, its special function with like Vitaka applying the attention along with all of the other associated states on the object, Vichara sustaining the attention along with all of the other associated factors, mental states on the object, and Piti bringing delight and interest in relationship to the object, and Sukha experiencing a sweet happiness in relationship to the object. So these are the first five wholesome factors of mind that are associated with the development of concentration and possibly jhana, metta practice, and insight, vipassana practice. So we'll go on now uh, and look at the other beneficial factors of mind somewhat more briefly, that are associated with concentration and metta and also vipassana, some of which we've already explored uh, in this retreat to some degree. The next factor is decision or resolve or intention, adimoka in Pali. 
And this is an occasional, as it's wholesome only if it's associated with a wholesome object of consciousness. Adimoka literally means or translates as the release of the mind onto the object. And so it's rendered as decision or resolution. We make a resolve. And it has the characteristic of conviction and the function of not groping around, not groping around for something. It has, uh, and it helps to create and to support a clarity of purpose in relationship to engaging in practice. It manifests as a decisiveness regarding the object of attention. And its nearest and its most immediate cause is that it needs something to be convinced about. So, for example, in our case here, making a resolve or making an intention to give one's complete attention to the breath at the Anapana spot or to the breath in the abdominal area or maybe to a metta phrase or to a particular object of metta or in Vipassana practice resolving to give full attention to the rise and the fall of the breath in the belly or maybe to bodily sensations or mental states. Adimoka has been compared to a stone pillar owing to its unshakable resolve regarding the object. The next beneficial factor of mind is energy. And the Pali word is virya. And this is another occasional wholesome mind state. And it's wholesome only when it's associated with wholesome activity in practice. Virya is a state or action of one who is vigorous. And its characteristic is exertion or supporting or mobilizing or marshalling as it's stated in the Abhidhamma. Its function is to support the states that it's associated with. And it manifests as non-collapsing. The closest cause for this energy to manifest is a sense of spiritual urgency. And it can also be encouraged and also stimulated by engaging in an experience that arouses energy, for instance, taking a refreshing walk, or maybe doing 15 minutes of yoga, or qigong, or tai chi, or some mindful exercise, or any wholesome, actually, any wholesome activity that stirs and inspires one to uh, an internal energy that's vigorous towards action, meaning vigorous towards energetic practice. The next wholesome factor of mind is wholesome desire. 
Chanda, or Kanda, sometimes pronounced in Pali. And this means the desire to act, the desire to perform and to achieve an action or to achieve a result. And this kind of desire, of course, needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire, unwholesome desire that stems from greed or stems from lust. Chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with wholesome mental intentions. It can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal as uh, in relationship to our practice. And it's spoken of metaphorically in the Abhidhamma commentaries in this way. The stretching forth of the mind's hand to the object. A really beautiful expression and image that I think says a lot. It's not about grabbing or grasping for experience, but stretching forth of the mind's hand towards the object or to the object. And there's a a long list of 27 universal factors or states of mind, wholesome and beautiful uh, factors and states of mind, some of which we've already explored uh, here in the retreat to some degree, and others uh, which we'll be exploring to some degree as this retreat continues. So I'm just going to go through them uh, uh, relatively quickly. Faith, a very important aspect of our practice. Mindfulness, we've explored. It's the overall uh, ground of uh, every single bit of our various practices. The next two, hiri, moral shame, otapa, moral dread or fear of wrongdoing. And these two beautiful mental factors, hiri, otapa, are considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection and the functioning of the family, the community, the world, and in relationship to all relationships. Next is non-greed. Then non-hatred. And then neutrality of mind. Neutrality of mind is directly associated with equanimity. Tranquility of mind. Tranquility of heart. This is extensive calmness, a very deep and extensive calmness. Tranquility of consciousness. Lightness of mind, lightness of heart. A brightness, a brightness of heart and mind. The opposite of heaviness, the opposite of the sinking heart and the sinking mind and sinking consciousness. Malleability of mind, malleability of heart. And this is a non-rigidity. It's a very important quality of our practice. Malleability, non-rigidity of the heart and the mind. 
malleability of consciousness, wieldiness of mind, wieldiness of heart, wieldiness of consciousness. The ability, meaning the ability of the mind to go where it needs to go. Proficiency of mind, proficiency of heart, proficiency of consciousness, meaning a clarity and a quickness of mind, heart, and consciousness. Honesty, uprightness of mind and heart and consciousness. And again, all of these are in process right now with each of you as you practice. They're all in process of developing. And the next four in this uh, list are the divine abidings, the Brahma-viharas, which are both beautiful and wholesome. Metta, unconditional loving-kindness. Karuna, boundless, unconditional compassion. Mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy in relationship to others' success and happiness and joy. And equanimity, upeka in Pali. And then there are three more beautiful mental factors. And they're called abstinences. And these are three very distinct mental factors that the Buddha spoke about often, very often. And they come about through three different types, or three levels, we could say, of abstinence. And all three of these are very important for the development of concentration, insight, and metta. The first is natural abstinence, meaning the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm to oneself and cause harm to others. When an opportunity arises uh, to engage in them due to various conditions in our life, in particular circumstances in our life, such as one maybe one's so- social position, one's age, one's level of education, some particular circumstance that's occurring in one's life at a particular time, etc. And one naturally abstains from these mental and physical deeds that cause harm out of one's innate wisdom and one's innate compassion. So that's natural abstinence. And then there's the abstinence by undertaking the precepts. The commitment to live one's life observing the precepts. Abstaining from killing sentient beings. Abstaining from harmful speech. Abstaining from stealing abstaining from sexual harmful sexual activity and abstaining from taking intoxicants and the third abstinence is abstinence by eradication which comes about through the fruits of engaging in the supramundane path 
of the purification of heart and mind and consciousness. This Buddha Dhamma path of awakening, of liberation, that we're all walking along. And what's eradicated in this abstinence by eradication is any disposition, any disposition towards engaging in any deeds that cause harm. And if you consider that for a minute, it's kind of an amazing possibility, actually. Absolutely no inclination to engage in any deeds that cause any harm. The first two abstinences are mundane. They're considered mundane, common, ordinary in the worldly sense. While this one, this third abstinence, abstinence by eradication, this one's supramundane, it's called, meaning it's not common in the worldly sense at all. But it's of a spiritually purified nature. So just a little bit more uh, regarding the second abstinence, the undertaking of the precepts, this second level of abstinence of the beautiful and wholesome three abstinences. So looking at uh, uh, some of the specifics regarding this second abstinence. First, right speech. This is a challenging one in daily life, especially and maybe on retreat too. The mindful and deliberate abstinence from harmful, any, um, any harmful speech, meaning false speech, not engaging in false speech, not engaging in any kind of slanderous <coughs> speech at all, not, in, not speaking harshly, and not frivolous speech. It's quite challenging, actually, if some of you have really been paying attention in your daily life. And maybe here on retreat, although we're not talking very much here on retreat, so it's easier. (laughs) The second one uh, is right action. So the deliberate, mindful abstinence from any uh, harmful bodily action such as killing, such as stealing or saying it more uh, realistically in terms of our life, not taking what has not been offered. And that can get subtler and subtler and subtler. And of course, sexual misconduct, any harmful sexual activity to ourselves or in relationship to others. And the last one I wanted to uh, explore just a little bit, right livelihood. So again, a deliberate abstinence from what's called wrong livelihood. And classically, uh, it's spoken of as dealing in poisons, weapons, intoxicants, animals for slaughter, or 
people to be used in unwholesome and harmful ways. And classically that's often listed as uh, slavery. In our lives, engaging in work, not engaging in work that is selfishly oriented in usury ways regarding other living beings. So human human beings and other living beings. Um, and I think as our practice deepens, as it develops, as it blossoms, we become aware on deeper and deeper and deeper levels with understanding each of these um, abstinences uh, and, and how to live our life in relationship to that the wholesome and beautiful possibilities in relationship to abstaining from any harmful uh, deeds. It gets quite subtle as we go along. These abstinence, abstinences function as a kind of shrinking back, uh, which you may have felt internally, a kind of shrinking back from harmful deeds. The closest and most pertinent causes for, the, uh, for this are the special and beautiful qualities of faith and the uh, shame of engaging in harmful deeds, hiri, and the fear of wrongdoing, otapa, and living a relatively simple life, having relatively few wants and few wishes. We could say that all three of these beautiful mental factors can be regarded as the mind, the heart's wholesome aversion to wrongdoing. Aversion is not usually spoken of as wholesome. In this case, wholesome aversion to wrongdoing. The last of the long list of wholesome and beautiful mental factors or wholesome and beautiful mental states of mind that develop uh, through our practice is non-delusion. The wisdom faculty. The wholesome and beautiful factor of understanding and the, the eventually liberating factors or the eventual liberating insights of uh, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, and anatta, not-self. And this is really the essence of our path. This is a path of the heart and the mind. And as Carlos Castaneda said, a person of knowledge chooses a path with heart and follows it. And then looks and rejoices and laughs, sees, and knows. The importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice, your own practice experience, 
as concentration and mindfulness and metta and wisdom, insight uh, continue to blossom is that with the knowledge of what is occurring and why it's occurring we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, recognize and know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment and without identification and without fear or other aversive reactions that might come up and without misunderstandings and misinterpretations but with what is classically called dispassion which is what is really allowing the continuing development of our practice to just keep unfolding and keep blossoming. Closing the talk with uh, some words for from a couple of other uh, Dharma teachers. The first uh, comes from uh, Robert Piercig. Some of you may know who he is. He wrote The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Some of you may have read that at some point, if you're old enough. Most of us are old <laughs> enough. <laughs> Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It was probably my first Dharma book. So this is from Robert Piercig, the author of that book. So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. Inspiring. In closing the talk with some words from Atisha. Atisha was an 11th century Tibetan Buddhist master. And this is titled, What the Buddha Taught. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is peaceful a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation 
is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. Let's sit quietly for just a moment.